Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. There's desperation and anguish. More than 80,000 Afghans have since arrived in America. But this story is still unfolding. I'm Andrea Smartin. In my new podcast, Stranger Becomes Neighbor, we'll find out what happens to these new arrivals in our communities. Who would help our newest neighbors? Follow us at kslpodcast.com, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. I'm Jim Bennett. I'm Abby Bennett. And this is Dinner Table Politics. And Abby, we missed you last week. I missed you too. I'm back to reclaim my throne. Reclaiming your throne. Well, there's a lot to talk about this week, but I think we ought to begin by remembering John McCain and the passing of John McCain. I, it's, uh, we were talking, and I don't think you had recognized before all of this the kinds of things John McCain went through when he was a prisoner of war. No, I was I was reading his Wikipedia page. Like I was at work when the news broke, and I was like, "Did you guys know about this? Did you Did you guys know about this?" Like I had, like the the most um, exposure I had to John McCain was when he was running for president, right? And I was in sixth grade, I think. Uh, so I didn't really fully comprehend politics and what was happening back then. But it was crazy all the stuff I was reading. I was like, "This is this is insane," but. I no, don't know. Well, it's stunning to me because I went to some conservative websites after John McCain died, and he was not beloved among conservatives. And I have to confess that I voted for him in 2008, but I wasn't particularly happy about it. There were a number of issues in with which I disagreed with John McCain. But the fact is, when a man passes away, particularly a man who has devoted his life to this country to the extent that John McCain has... It's entirely inappropriate to use that moment to settle old political scores, which is why I'm so disgusted. Were you reading the comment sections again? I was reading Stop the, I, I reading know. the comment sections. I know. They I are should. a cesspool of misery and disaster. That's Never right. read the comment sections ever. That's just a general rule of thumb for everything, ever. That is the best advice I have given other people that I have never followed myself. Oh, man. No, when my own, when my father, your grandfather, passed away, I would read all the comment sections, and ninety-nine percent of them were positive. And every once in a while, somebody would say something awful. And you are a glutton for punishment. I'm a glutton for punishment, but you end up fixating on the one thing that is awful. And John McCain, I don't care whether or not you agreed with him politically, and I certainly didn't on a number of issues. I know that my father, particularly, he and John McCain did not get along very well. Uh, but at the same time, he respected John McCain's extraordinary service to this country. And I really think it's a disgrace the way the White House has reacted to the passing of John McCain. Have you been following any of that? Um, I saw a little bit about um, flag being lowered and then raised and then lowered again. Right. I'm not sure what the status of its lowering or raising is right now, but... Well, this goes back to that whole issue when Princess Diana died. Remember we were talking about that when we were in London? Uh-huh that uh, my sister Wendy was saying that the the uh, palace did not lower the flag to half-staff when Princess Diana died. Although, at the same time, they weren't flying the Union Jack. They were only flying the Queen's flag, and they were really upset that they were being asked to do what all the plebeians were having to do, to mourn somebody who sure, passed. those stupid proletariat. Those stupid proletariat. And ever since then, they've flown the Union Jack, and they've lowered it at half-mast when people of note have passed away. But the White House's reaction to this, the White House had also prepared a statement uh, 
that referenced all of John McCain's service to the country, and President Trump refused to to read it. President Trump just tweeted out a quick, oh, my condolences are with his family, and refused to acknowledge the vast service that that man and the sacrifices that that man made for this country. It's just extraordinary that we have a president that's that petty. Do you agree? Yeah, that's, this is old news, though. This is we, all old news. You, there's nothing we don't know that was revealed by the situation. That's that's true. Well, so let's get on to some new news. And, and actually... Some new news. Some new news, but let's put it in the context of old news, or at least old principles. I want to talk this week about the separation of church and state. Are you excited? I am thrilled. Two of my favorite <laughs> things, churches and states. Churches and states. So I received an email from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We're not allowed to call them Mormons anymore. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I'm not allowed to call myself a Mormon anymore. Tread carefully, my friend. So I'm treading carefully. I'm trying to follow the prophet and follow the guidelines here. But it's so difficult because Mormon is two syllables. Okay, okay. anyways, it doesn't matter. Oh, okay. Mormon's two syllables is, and the full is, name of the church is 11 this syllables. This is a political podcast. This is a political podcast. So I received a political message from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints telling me to vote no on on Proposition 2, the medical marijuana proposition here in Utah. And I was, you know, I, I looked at that and it, it it called to mind an exchange I actually had with Elder M. Russell Ballard back in 1994. Have I told you about this story? No. I was negative three that year. You were negative three. When you were negative three, I was just newly married and I was a an intern in Washington, D.C. for Senator Alan Simpson of Wyoming who is still, to this day, one of my favorite human beings on the planet. Al Simpson is the funniest person, and he, he, he can swear better than anybody else I've ever heard. He is can, he still alive? He is still alive. I spoke is to he him. Is still in office? He is not, no. Oh. He hasn't been in office for, uh, oh, 20 years at least. But he's he, he, he taught me two of the most valuable lessons I've ever learned in my entire life. One, actually, the day I started to work for him was the day that he lost the whip election to be the Republican whip to Trent Lott. This was in 1994. And so I went in, and I had never met him, and I'm sitting there in this room full of staffers who are all close to tears because their boss has just lost this critical election. And Al Simpson gave me two pieces of advice. He gave the whole staff two pieces of advice, but I've taken them to heart. The first... Never wear white after Labor Day. Close. Mm. Uh, the first was, there was a never in there. That's in the second. The first one was, hatred corrodes the container it's carried in. And that's always struck me as a really powerful So hatred message. is acidic or, Hate, base, or basic? Well, see, you're coming Either at way, it from a scientist. On, on a very, uh, very high end of the pH scale. It's very high end on the pH or scale. Or very low end. The magnitude is just, is just big. That's correct. When you hate somebody, it tears you apart, doesn't do anybody to the, anything to the person you hate. And so that's always been powerful to me. The second piece of advice, this is the never advice. Never kick a fresh turd on a hot day. How often has that advice come in handy for you? <laughs> Well, the context he was putting it in was when something is heated and difficult, leave it alone for a while. Let it rest. Never kick a fresh turd on a hot day. Are we allowed to say turd in this podcast? Turd, 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 hopefully. Oh, okay, we're in trouble now. Uh, but anyway, this, this actually has nothing to do with Al Simpson. This has to do with Elder Ballard coming to Washington, D.C. to talk to all of the Latter-day Saint staffers. See, I didn't say Mormon there. 
all the Latter-day Saint staffers that were working on Capitol Hill. And he was talking to them about the church as it goes across the world and all these kinds of things. And he opened it up for questions. And at the end of it, I raised my hand. And this was a year when the church was opposing a same-sex marriage initiative in Hawaii. And I raised my hand and I said, Elder Ballard, the church has gotten involved in political issues in Hawaii and in the United States. As the church goes worldwide, are we going to see the same thing happen in other countries? What do you think his answer was? Um, never kick a turd on a hot day. Uh, no, Elder Ballard would never say that. You know that. What now, did he come say? on. He actually got angry. Uh, he got, I, I felt a little uncomfortable. I felt like he was ripping me up in front of dozens of people I didn't know. But he said, the church never gets involved in political issues. The church only gets involved in moral issues. Hmm. And so never, never assume the church is getting involved in a political issue. And so when I received the email stating the church's opposition to Proposition 2, I thought the church has to see this. For people that don't know, Proposition 2 is the initiative to, what, legalize medical marijuana in Utah? Like did, I not, did I not say that I at the outset? Okay. Yeah, that's important. And so I thought, so the church must see medical marijuana as a moral issue, uh, which kind of surprises me. I'm not quite sure that it is a moral issue. But uh, there's been a lot of consternation about whether or not this is appropriate for the church to get involved in politics. And I wanted to put all of this in the context of the history of not just the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, but all religious involvement in politics and what the separation of church and state truly means. So, okay. So I'm going to give you a quiz here. All right. Um, where in the Constitution does it talk about the separation of church and state? The... Aha. I've taught you flat-footed. The part with the writing. The part with the writing. Not in the margins. You are actually incorrect. What? There is no writing in the Constitution about a separation between church and state. The Constitution says nothing about a separation between That's church and state. That's interesting. The phrase separation of church and state comes from a letter, a private letter written by Thomas Jefferson long after the Constitution was ratified, where he talked about the importance of establishing a wall of separation between church and state. Who was the letter to? Uh, I wish you hadn't asked me that question because I don't know. Let's just make it up. We'll just make it up. It was to a guy named... To his buddy, Greg. Yeah, so it was Thomas Jefferson writing to Greg and said there needs to be a wall of separation between church and state. Uh, But the concept... And Greg uh, was like, I agree with you, dude. All right, so hold on. We're going to get into a little more of Greg's reaction when we come back from our break. Okay, so separation of church and state. Right. Uh, It's not wrong to say that the Constitution doesn't provide for what would be defined as a separation between church and state. But the Constitution, its references to religion uh, are both in the First Amendment and they are involved in what they call the Establishment Clause and the Free Exercise Clause. Okay. So the Establishment Clause, it says Congress shall make no law regarding the establishment of religion or the free exercise thereof. And so the difference is... So it seems like Congress isn't, or the government isn't allowed to act on religion, but there's nothing to say that religion can't 
act on government. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, people talk about separation of church and state as if it's some kind of freedom to be uh, remain unexposed to religious ideas. Also, why do we have a one nation under God then? Like, well, our- if it was good enough for the founding fathers, it's good enough for me, right? I guess. And don't we have like religious stuff on our that money was a, That too, was a or? joke because the phrase under God wasn't added to the, to the Pledge of Allegiance until I think 1960. Well, the joke isn't funny because I didn't get the reference. You didn't so get the reference. You should have added like a, a fart noise or something. Uh, I know. Well, that or was like a, a ba-dum-ts. Ba-dum-ts. Well, that was a meme that was floating around when Sarah Palin was nominated to be vice president. They were talking about a questionnaire she answered and they said, would you keep under God in the Pledge of Allegiance? And she said, well, if it's good enough for... The Founding Fathers, it's good enough for me. Except oh, it was Sarah. fake. She had so many good sound bites. Except for it was fake. She never said it. It was They made it up. Hmm. She also never said, I can see Russia from my house. Tina, Dang it. That was my favorite one from her. I know. Tina Fey said that. Okay, anyways. Anyway, yeah. Under God as as a uh, phrase in the Pledge of Allegiance, but also in God we trust. This is, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, this has all been legislated. It's gone up, up before the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court's response to it is that this isn't really an expression of religion that the religious content has been drained out of those phrases by their constant use over mm. time. And so they, the, every time someone tries to remove in God we trust or anything, uh, the Supreme Court always smacks it down. And it's impossible to go to Washington, D.C. and visit all of the monuments and not see all kinds of statements about God carved into stone in official public monuments. If you go to the Jefferson Memorial uh, there's all kinds of God quotes up there. And right. you, you go to the, the Lincoln Memorial where he talks about he trembles because God is just. And Doesn't the, the Gettysburg Address have some stuff about? Well, it talks about, um, does Gettysburg Address mention God? That's a good question. I, I had to memorize it in fifth grade and now I've forgotten. You had to memorize it in fifth grade? Yeah. I had to memorize it in fifth grade. I had to perform as Abraham Lincoln in fifth grade. I did not. Yeah, I shared, I was double cast with Philip Golden. Uh, who was a wild-eyed liberal who I got Karl Rove to send a private message to. That was kind of fun. That's a whole other story. So the the whole idea of of excluding God from public life was never the intent of the First Amendment. It was never the intent of the Founding Fathers to say religion does not have a place in public life. Okay. So uh, That's, That's fascinating. I never knew that. You never knew that? Well, the, the thing is that you're seeing a whole bunch of people who that there's a freedom from religion foundation that's trying to fight any attempt to have religion participate in the public square. Uh, but back in the day when Robert Bork was nominated to the Supreme Court, uh, the focus was on abortion. But one of his more controversial things that he said was is that he, he says the Establishment Clause only prevents the federal government from establishing a state religion. You know, if you go over to England, they have a state religion. It's the Church of England. Mm-hmm. The Queen of England is the head of the Church of England. It's pretty cool. Bork, pretty Bork was of the opinion that the federal government couldn't establish a religion. But could states? But states could. Cool. Right? So the state of Utah could vote to establish an official religion. And I would think the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints might think, well, that's kind of nice. At the same time, I think maybe they think we want to stay as far away from that as possible. Uh, how would you feel if a state tried to establish a state religion? I feel like it would never, ever work. It would never, people would not be on board with that. Like, what, what, And what's the point? What would it even do? Like, would people like, 
have to be like what what would that even accomplish i don't think it would accomplish anything and i think it would probably diminish the importance of religion in public life if you go over to england or you go to places where they have official state religions you also find that they have a whole lot of empty churches uh, religion in europe even though it is state sponsored in a number of different places uh, people aren't showing up on a sunday morning I tried to get you to go to an official state religion church when we were in London. We wanted to go to the Evensong at Westminster Abbey. Yeah. And what was your reaction? Um, we're in London. Can we do something fun? Not go to church? Yeah. I, yeah. I thought specifically you had said, I didn't go on vacation to go to church. That sounds like something I would say. Yes. That does sound like something that you would say. So uh, so the, the establishment of a state religion is really not something that people are are too worried about nowadays. Although the accusation that churches are trying to essentially legislate morality and establish themselves continues to be at the forefront of politics all throughout the country, but it has a unique application, I think, here in Utah. Here in the Beehive State. So when we get back, I want to talk to you about actually a conversation I had with a political leader in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Ooh, can't wait. Sounds juicy. Sounds juicy. We'll get back to that in just a minute. So, there was a point in my life when I was looking for a job. Does that surprise you? Mm, no. Nope. There have been several points in my life when I've been looking for a job. And I was interviewing to be the government relations director for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Essentially, the lobbyist for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Okay. And uh, I didn't get the job. Uh, they didn't. And the, the man who had the job was a man named Bill Evans, and he decided not to retire after I'd been interviewed. Okay. But it was a fascinating interview because I had the chance to sit down with him and talk to him about what this job would entail, and he gave me a lot of insight into how the church interacts with the state of Utah and with the country politically. But he said everybody accuses the church of running everything in the state of Utah. And he says, we know we have the biggest stick, uh, you know, that when we do something that legislators will respond to it because many of them are faithful members of the church. And he says, that's why we choose not to use it. Hmm. He says, we don't go into the legislative session and go. They just stand threatening, threateningly behind everybody with the stick raised. They right. Never, they never hit people. Well, there are some people who feel that's what's exactly what they do. They, they feel like they're just. The, the the threat even of church action uh, is it's like someone standing in a corner and like drawing a finger across their throat. You know, uh, well, I think it's the same kind of idea. Well, you never know. Just kidding. Just kidding. the the uh, The thing that was interesting though is he said we, we we try not to use it. We don't want to exert undue influence. He says the flip side of that, however, is that when the church does choose to act in the political arena. Uh, that's something that has gone up the flagpole to the highest levels of the church. That he says, I, he says, I'm never given the authority to go rogue. You know, if my office comes out with a political position, it's something that has been improved at the highest levels of the church. That would be a cool Mission Impossible movie, Rogue Nation, Church Edition. Oh, yeah, that would be fun. That, Instead of like the dun dun dun, it'd like be played like on the organ, oh. the theme song. <laughs> in the in, in the tabernacle, yeah. 
That'd be good. It was, do you think Tom Cruise could jump from the tabernacle to the conference center, just across that block? I think his Scientology powers would allow him to do so, yes. Well, there you go. So we're bringing another religion in here. to the, That would be a great state-mandated religion. Scientology? Scientology. Which state should be... Which state should sponsor Scientology? Um, ideally, all of them. More realistically, <laughs> probably like Rhode Island or something. Rhode Island? I don't uh, know. It's small. Who cares about Rhode Island? Uh, Rhode Island's more... No offense to all those Rhode Islanders out there. Uh, we love you. We love you. Yes, we, this, this podcast has a huge Scientological following and a huge following in Rhode Island. That would be so awesome. <laughs> so the... Um, I don't even know what we're talking about. So we're talking about... See, he's uh, not allowed to go rogue. Yeah, he's not allowed to go rogue. And he said, so the church issued a statement in support of the Utah Compact. Are you familiar with the Utah Compact? I am not. Please Utah, enlighten me. Utah Compact was a statement about illegal immigration. And the church came out in favor of compassion and uh, against mass deportations, um, essentially against the Trump policy of immigration. Okay. This is this was even before Trump. This was, I think, two thousand and nine, when the Utah Compact was issued, and he said it was amazing to him how many Republicans, particularly, suddenly decided that what the church says about politics really doesn't matter because it's not really coming from the leaders of the church. It's mm-hmm. just coming from these rogue operatives in the government relations department. And my experience in the Republican Party is such that there is such a rancid mixture very often among people who are trying to say, I'm holier than thou, I'm a more faithful member than you are, and that's why you should vote for me. And you see that over and over again. And yet, right after the church issued its its statement about supporting the Utah Compact, it um, was right before the... Utah State Republican Convention, and the State Republican Convention had a resolution condemning the Utah Compact. And so my perception of that is, geez, these people, it's more important for them to be Republican than it is for them to listen to their church. It is. Politics are basically a type of religion. Like, people, like, are like, ah, this is a cult, man, 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 that. But, like, a lot of political things are kind of culty. I don't know. What would you describe as the most culty aspect of politics? Um, I don't know. Like um, when Trump goes to like rallies and stuff for no like for no good reason. I don't really know. I guess he's like campaigning already. But when he goes to rallies and doesn't say anything really of substance, and people are just like, "Whoa, yeah!" And that seems like it's a cult. Well, it's, cult it's the of same kind of thing. Yeah, like a really charismatic person who doesn't it, who just gets a lot of followers. Like it doesn't matter what they say at that point. Yeah, yeah, I can understand that. And there there are some kind of religious elements to the whole political experience. And I think re- uh, politics can become a substitute religion. Uh, you know, I mentioned my friend Philip, who I sent a message from Karl Rove when Karl Rove was campaigning for Dad. He said, "Do you guys have any friends who hate me?" And I said, yeah, I have one. He, he said that without yeah. being provoked? Oh, he was hysterical. Carl Rove, I don't care what you think of him politically, he's really funny and really pleasant. And he said, give me your phone. I want to call one of them. And I said, I don't have his number. And so he made a video. And, and he said, hey, Philip Golden, how are you my favorite liberal? How you doing, buddy? It was the funniest thing in the world. If you, but 
But Philip Golden is an atheist, but he's also to some degree the most religious person I know because he is so slavishly devoted to the political salvation of the world that anybody that is opposed to him on an ideological basis isn't just wrong, they're evil. And I think that's... Is he okay with you saying that? Oh, I don't know. I don't, I'm not sure if he listens to this. Philip's one of my favorite people on the planet. He's a wonderful, wonderful human being. So I can say that, can't I? I guess. But, but no, he, he is deeply devoted to the principles of, of the Democratic Party. Okay. And there's nothing wrong with that necessarily. But when, right. but, but I, when, when we talk about a separation between church and state, I think there is a legal separation, but I think there ought to be to some degree a moral separation between the two. That sounds fuzzy and tricky to delineate. Well, Why? Because what is what morals are are subjective. There's no like agreement on what a, like the I don't know. That's just that's hard to lay down. Well, so you're arguing moral relativism to some degree. Yes. Oh, I'm not a moral relativist. We'll have to get into that. But that's not a political podcast, is it? If we talk about moral relativism. Um. Well, one of the biggest charges against against religious people getting involved in politics is they say you're trying to legislate morality. You cannot legislate morality. Sure. But the reality is that every single piece of legislation legislates morality. Every single piece of legislation. It goes against my morals to slow down at yellow lights and not speed through them. Okay. Well, so the law. So I wish that they wouldn't have legislated their religion. Right. Over my morality. Okay. Well, then let me let me qualify that a little bit a little bit further. Every piece of legislation represents a clear moral consensus. Okay. So, in other words, if everybody agreed that you shouldn't slow down at yellow lights, eventually legislation would would reflect that. If everybody had your moral principles of speeding up at yellow lights. Thank goodness they don't, honestly. Thank goodness they don't, honestly. I don't think you do, honestly, but that's a whole other story. Uh, you know, one of the reasons I think abortion is so contentious is because there is not a clear moral consensus. Right. Not everybody agrees on the moral principles involved, but everybody does agree that murdering somebody because you want their sneakers is morally wrong, correct? But what if the murderer was a, the person that you're murdering was a serial killer? Who okay. had stolen some really nice sneakers? Then another moral principle is coming into play there. I, don't know, I kind of, I kind of hate this. Like you know, like in any like philosophy class, it's the whole like, would you pull the lever to switch the trains that that it would hit the the kids or the three people? You know, that. the trolley problem. Yeah, the trolley problem, or whatever. It's like, you've watched, you... you've watched um, the Good Place, haven't you? Yeah. Yeah, they actually reenact the trolley problem. Oh, I don't, I don't remember that. You haven't that's, seen that? You have to watch season two. Oh, I haven't watched season it's two. It's pretty funny. But yeah, that's like the classic example where they're like, would you push a fat person over the bridge to stop the trolley? I don't know. And it just, it just a makes fat my, person? That's one of the ones that they told us in my middle <laughs> school class. They're like, so if you push the fat person over the bridge, then it would stop the trolley from hitting the kids. But that would like, you're you're like actively killing a person then, you know, then you're right. not just like deciding between the um, death of one group or death of another. You're like, you're like specifically condemning this person to their death. I don't know. I, I, you can just talk yourself in a circle forever. Well, we're going to get into some other moral quandaries when we come back from our break. Okay. All 
All right, welcome back. How was your break? Good. You always ask me that, and I never have anything funny to say. Well, you did say that you did very well on your practice MCAT test. Uh, Are we not allowed to talk about I that? Just, I just get crippling anxiety headaches whenever I talk about the MCAT. So. All right. Well, everybody out there, Abby's going to be taking the NCAT on September 8th. So, Please send good vibes, good prayers, vibes. Yes. light some candles, anything this would is, help. This is the religious podcast here, so prayers would be accepted, I think. Would yes, they not? I will take whatever I can get. Well, it's interesting because when you start discussing morality in a political context, uh, you do get to the issue of whether morality is relative or not sure. and, and whether or not that matters. One of the things that's interesting when you start talking about morality is what C.S. Lewis called the two greatest proofs of the existence of God. I love C.S. Lewis. I do too. What a guy. So what do you think are C.S. Lewis's two proofs of the existence of God? Um, Lions that can talk. Okay. And goat people. (laughs) So the fact that there aren't any lions who can talk or goat people. There are. They just live in the wardrobe or whatever in Narnia. That's exactly right. No, he said the first one is the fact that there is something rather than nothing. The fact that there is creation, that there is existence, that there is stuff. And he goes into that and he says, but that is not the strongest example of the existence of God. And I always describe the second example in what I call the parable of the parking lot. Okay. Okay, you ready for the parable of the parking lot? Oh, I'm ready. So you pull into a parking lot. And it's jammed with people. It's actually the parking lot of a hospital. No, it's Trader Joe's on a Saturday. Even better than a hospital. Okay. I might mess it up a little bit, but okay. It's Trader Joe's on a Saturday and you pull in and there are no spots. So you sit and you wait patiently at the end of the lot as you're waiting for somebody to leave. And somebody finally is pulling out in the spot that you've been waiting for. But before you can get to that spot, Somebody else zooms in and takes the spot away from you. Ugh. Okay. Swear words. Swear words. So could that person be morally justified in taking that spot? Can you imagine a scenario in which that person could be morally justified? Like, I guess. Okay, give, give it to me. What's the um, scenario? They need cookie butter or they'll die. Okay. From Trader Joe's. Okay. So... So their urgency, this is why the hospital works, because maybe they have Okay, a, fine, whatever. It's a hospital. It's a fine. hospital, and, and they need to get in to the emergency room. But whenever you do this, people come up with compelling reasons for why somebody needs that spot more than somebody else. Nobody ever says, well, the second person is justified because the second person got their second. Okay. And you're looking confused. And this is what C.S. Lewis says, is he says, we don't even question that basic moral assumption. We all know that the person who was there first is the person who should have the spot. We all have a basic set of moral rules that govern how we interact with each other. He says that demonstrates that there is a God and that God wants us to behave in a certain way. that God wants parking lots to be organized. That's right. Parking lots are at the top of his agenda. So when I establish a church as the official church of a state, according to Robert Bork's guidelines, I think that's going to be the top priority at the top of the list. Do you I, think that's, I think that's an uh, admirable thing to put in a religion. That's right. Well, 
I, you know, it's a very tricky, it's a difficult road to walk, and a lot of people get upset about uh, religious influence. They get upset about the fact that uh, churches are tax-exempt. John Oliver did a big thing about uh, a guy named Robert Tilton, who was a TV evangelist that was big when I was in Southern California, who used to say, if you just send him your last $1,000, he will pray over it personally, and then God will reward you with Oh, I think I saw dollars. that episode. Yeah, that was funny. It's good stuff. Oh, yeah. And then the, the, he ended up being totally disgraced when people found all these envelopes filled with prayer requests that had just been slit open, the checks removed, and the prayer requests Shocking. tossed in the, in the dumpster. Who would have thought? So, you know, there, there's a lot of difficulty with dealing with religion, but religion absolutely has a place at the table when it comes to participating in the public sphere. And defining what that place is is, is always going to be tricky, and, uh, but it's something that we, we need to recognize and we need to be able to do. So before we get into any more religion, once again, we just want to remind you as this podcast, which is also going to be broadcast on the airwaves on KSL, uh, we want you to visit the podcast at the KSL Podcast Center or on iTunes. Subscribe, listen, and hear all of Abby's religious experiences as we go forward. And make sure that you pray for her for the MCAT. Yes? That would be... I can't even joke about that. I'm going to start crying. I'm sorry. Well, this is Jim Bennett. I'm Abby Bennett. We'll see you next week on Dinner Table Politics. Bye.